if your creativity is something that you lead with for your success and is an identifier for you, you have to treat that the same way you would any other muscle. Welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out with me. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. If you're new, welcome for the first time. I hope you stay for the future and go back and listen to the very robust archive of episodes. I've been doing this for about seven years. There's nearly 300 of them. And if you listen every week, that's really cool. I'm trying my best with these interviews. I really enjoy doing them and I hope you like listening to them. And I like chatting with you at the beginning every week, but I'm going to try to keep that short. Do you guys listen to Mark Marin's podcast? He has been doing it much longer than I have. He just got to a thousand episodes and he did this episode for his 1000th episode with his producer. I think I talked about it at the end of last week's episode. I definitely posted about it on Instagram, but his producer said that His podcast is ultimately one man's audio journal because he talks at the beginning like I do and at the end about the episode and basically, you know, how the sausage was made of the podcast and what's going on in his life. And anyway, I do that maybe a little bit and I've gone in pockets and, you know, sharing with you before and after the episodes. But ultimately, there's such a mirror to where I am based on who I'm inviting on the podcast and what I'm asking and what I'm curious about. And it just makes me feel close to you guys because if you're listening, you might be curious about something similar. And I've been getting the nicest messages and meeting people who have been listening for a little bit or for a while. And it's just really cool. I like what we've created here. So speaking of, I wanna keep this short, get right to today's episode. Thank you for listening and being here. The next few episodes were all recorded at this music festival in Las Vegas that I was at last month called Emerge. A lot of artists coming up, a lot of musicians coming up, including but not limited to Depressed Monsters and Yokelor and Andrew Bird, who were all playing and performing at this music festival. And not just musicians like today's episode with the founder of Emerge, which I'll get to in a second. But what is Emerge? Emerge is this art festival. It's a music festival, essentially, but it's the intersection of social justice and art and music. And it's this annual two-day interdisciplinary exploration through live music and passionate storytelling and progressive art and crafted parties and these immersive experiences And I got to be part of one of those. You'll hear a little bit more about Emerge and how it started in this episode because the founder and creator of Emerge is the guest, Rehan. But before we get to that interview, and it's just a really great interview, we talk about entrepreneurship and emotions and art and activism and music and depression and the link between that and creativity and parenthood and change and relationships. He's a 
very interesting fellow, and I think you will really enjoy this conversation. And I think it's great that I'm putting this one first of all of the episodes that are recorded there because you'll get to hear about what exactly emerges. But going back to why I was there and what I was doing there, some of you might remember from a couple of years ago, we had a sponsor, not a couple of years ago, maybe like one year ago, we had this sponsor, Little Space. It's a digital wellness app that helps you to spend time unplugged off your phone and it tracks the time that you spend off of your phone and then donates money to a cause that you love. And as a Let It Out family, last year we got to donate a chunk of money to Real Girl, an organization that I love. So I love this app and it was so cool that they sponsored the podcast and I became friends with the founder, Kim, because she's a delight. I actually just celebrated her birth. She's here in New York for a bit and we just celebrated her birthday this weekend. I love her so much. So she became a friend really mostly after a merge. We really bonded during that weekend there. But before that, we became friends after she supported the podcast and we just get along really well. And we thought it would be so cool to do interviews at music festivals. And her husband works in the music industry. He's actually going to be a guest coming up. His name is Rob Cavallo. I think Rayhan mentions him in this episode. He's a very prolific music producer. And Kim and I were talking a couple months ago. We were just sitting on the roof of the wing and talking about maybe about music and her husband and maybe about being off of our phones and the intersection of all of these things. And we were like, it would be so cool to do a lounge, like a wellness lounge or a unplugged lounge at a music festival, because isn't it funny how at concerts, people are constantly, I think maybe I had just been to a concert or something. And so we were talking about this or she was going to a concert, one or the other. And we were talking about how people go to live music and watch it through their phones and how that's really interesting. But also I understand because they want to, and I do this too, they want to share the moment or make the moment last longer. And it's just interesting. And so we kicked around this idea of doing a lounge where I would come and interview artists and we would have a space where people could be and unplug and be present and be off their phones. And so cut to June of this year, we did it. We did one at Emerge, this music festival. And it was really cool. It was great. I interviewed eight people in two days, which was a lot of interviews, but you're going to hear them all. And I'm really excited for you to hear all of them. So I can't think of a better person to kick off the Emerge series, I guess, that will be coming up over the summer on this podcast than the founder of the music festival, Rayhan. So you're going to hear that conversation now. Enjoy it. And I'll talk to you guys at the end. CBD is everywhere, you guys. Who is not talking about CBD right now? That's how I feel, at least. I've been using it for years, and I really like this company, Ned. They make the most wonderful organic 
CBD, all natural ingredients, small batches, slow certified. They know their farmer. The farmer plays music to the plants, which I think is so lovely and infuses them with love and gratitude. And I just, I really, really love CBD products and I love Ned. I love everything from their oil, their CBD oil, which is what I use every single day, mostly. And I love their lip balms, which I definitely use every day. If you want to check out CBD, try it for the first time. Or if you like CBD, definitely try Ned. It's the best. And I think you guys would really like it. Use the code let it out at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Again, that's let it out for 15% off your purchase. They're non-GMO, gentle, slow extraction. CBD is a really useful tool for my anxiety. I take it all the time and I think you guys would probably like it. Go to helloned.com slash let it out. That's helloned ned.com slash let it out and use the code let it out at checkout for 15% off your order. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be at Emerge and I'm loving everything that you bring together in collage into such a beautiful format. But before we talk about Emerge, tell me a bit about you. What were you like as a kid? Where did you grow up? I was born in Chicago and grew up in the D.C., Northern Virginia, D.C. Okay. area. My sister and I are first-generation American. Our parents uh, immigrated to the U.S. from Pakistan in the 70s. And, I mean, literally, like, left a poverty-stricken kind wow. of environment to both. They, they went to med- medical school, they became physicians, and they came out here to do their um, to do their residencies and knew no one, barely spoke the language, but but took a shot. So we um, we had the privilege of growing up here, but then also um, kind of the interesting task of trying to assimilate into two cultures, like one that our family didn't recognize and the other that we didn't recognize because we didn't grow up back where our parents did. So it's always an interesting challenge when you're young to try to kind of figure out your place in the world to begin with, but let alone when you're trying to do it with like the stark separation of two different worlds. My sister went down the path of, of medicine like my family did, and I ended up after 40 years, ended up a party planner in Las Vegas, which is very different from from being a doctor. But uh, yeah, so my, my path was pretty unique. I, I struggled through school growing up. I had um, horrible ADD. I, I was behind in every one of my classes. I, I, I was blind. I needed glasses for the first four grades. I think it was in the fourth grade before anyone realized that I couldn't see, which is why I was being disruptive in school. So struggled through college barely graduated and then kind of set out to figure out what was next. And I graduated right after some the September 11th attacks happened while I was in school and I graduated right after. Were um, you in New York at that time? No, I was not. I was in Tampa, Florida. I was far away from New York as humanly possible. But um, the reverberating effects of, of what happened, both the attack and our kind of as a culture shaping our, our understanding around a world that now existed in which something like that could happen. Beyond that, the business of being a new college graduate entering the workforce fundamentally changed because the Bush era presidency was dumping hundreds of billions of dollars into both a war and then also new departments in the United States. So this like kid that struggled in school, like I kicked out of college for a year and, and managed to get back in and graduate. All of a sudden, I, I 
lucked my way into a job as a, an IT consultant, a tech consultant for the Department of Homeland Security. Um, wow. Yeah, it was a very, very strange transition. But I think the opportunity to work in a startup environment, even if it's a heavily funded startup environment, was really interesting to me. And it was at a time I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. So next thing you know, I'm, I'm underground developing uh, emergency response communication systems for the government in light of what we learned during the 9-11 attacks. Had a wake-up call one day and was like, this isn't what I should be doing. I don't want to be underground. I don't want to be in a suit and tie. I don't know why I'm working in tech. I'm too creative. And I ended up going to grad school. So I moved to Nashville, Tennessee and went to business school. And after two years, got recruited by Caesars Entertainment, the casino company. And next thing you know, I'm trying to get people to gamble. (laughs) Um, So I moved to Atlantic City, New Jersey, ran business development for four casinos out there. And the recession hit, and we laid off as a company a hundred sorry fifteen thousand people of one hundred and fifty, so ten percent of the total workforce. Atlantic City and Las Vegas got hit the worst in in the country because they were true destination markets. And in an attempt to try to turn around the business, there I created a program um, called Citywide Events and started doing festivals. Effectively, this was a decade before anybody was really talking about festivals, especially in in casino environments. Founded a food and wine festival, the city's first LGBTQ festival, some sporting events. I got the attention, I caught the attention of a group of people who were opening a casino in Las Vegas called the Cosmopolitan. And in 2010, I moved out here to become the director of entertainment for Cosmo, developed the city's first true live touring concert business. Um, So we were bringing bands that nobody heard of at the time, but Mumford and Sons, Young the Giant, Ellie Goulding, Katie Tunstale, Adele, the Black Keys. Like these were like brand, brand, brand new names at the time. We did a big grand opening party with Jay-Z and Coldplay and Kanye and Beyonce. It was just like living the high life. And up to that point, I'd never booked a concert in my life. So I was kind of thrown in this world of music. Yeah. Left after two years because I think the idea of getting people to gamble for a living wasn't really where I was supposed to be doing. And um, I moved to downtown Las Vegas and founded a music festival called Life is Beautiful, which was my kind of first attempt at trying to create a big, large cultural event that had roots in in social, um, socially conscious messaging. So the idea was you got an entire generation of young people, millennials specifically, whose suicide rates were climbing faster than any other living generation on the planet. And they're going to festivals 90,000 at a time, and nobody's talking about suicide. No one's talking about depression. No one's talking about mental health. So we created this festival that was kind of rooted in in that kind of messaging and couldn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish on the social impact side. On the event side, we created a beautiful event. So I I ended up selling out of it in 2016 and started this, started Emerge. And the idea is like fully dive down the rabbit hole of the blending together of live entertainment and the role that live entertainment has played throughout history and social justice and social activism, specifically speaking on behalf of minority perspectives and minority interests. So we're the little social justice conference that could in this sea of 40 million people that come in and gamble and party and and go nuts, but we're in a battleground state and we're in a city that's Swing still state, developing culturally Nevada. yeah um it is so in any given year we had um we had president obama here we had secretary clinton here we had and when you have donald trump coming in every couple months and it's just it's a really polarizing state it's 50 out of 50 in education um the transgender community the lgbtq community is largely impoverished and not given the same support system as as 
as in some other major cities. Um, we have issues here that we're running out of water. Climate change is affecting the desert first. Um, there's just a, a lot of issues that I think are represented here that most people don't think of Las Vegas as, as being a hub for. So yeah. that's no, how I got here. There's like 12 things I want to pick up on in, in what you said, but you made my, my questions very easy. You hit a lot of my notes. But let's go back to the beginning when you said that you struggled in school and had ADD. And I think your story is such a beautiful example of that Steve Jobs quote of you can't connect the dots moving forward, only looking back of you happen to find your way into event planning. And that led you to creating something that really hit a lot of your notes and a lot of notes that probably came from even childhood and your parents. But with with ADD and with your own mental health and your own struggles with trying to be a person in the world, you know, which I think is very challenging in itself. What has helped you? What has helped? I mean, you came from struggling in school to being so prolific and productive in the things that you do. What were, was there a mentor or something that, that helped you along the way? What yeah, helps now? It, it was hard. It was a hard journey. Only now do we kind of live in an era where um, we acknowledge mental health is not something that you bury out of familial insecurity, but rather something that you that you carry pridefully and you lead your conversations with. And I think the intention is the more that you can share, one, the more that you can understand either through sharing or through conversations, what you're going through, the more you can kind of hone in on ways to work through it and get support systems for it. At the time, I was a troubled, disruptive child. You can ask my parents today. They'll tell you they, they were 100% certain that it wasn't that I couldn't do the work. I was just lazy. I could play the guitar. I could play soccer. I played lacrosse. I excelled at certain things, but I, I just didn't want to read or I didn't want to learn. And the reality was if you'd stripped away the layers and not looked at it so black and white, like clearly he can play the guitar, but he can't do math, but looked at how I was doing both. I think now in hindsight, we, we realize that I never really learned how to play the guitar like a musician does. I learned how to play the first 30 seconds of every song ever written. And it's because my ADD wouldn't allow me to finish a project. So it wasn't that I was excelling at one thing and not the other. It was that I was failing at both of them. I just didn't like failing in math. Didn't feel good because I didn't enjoy it. So I think part of the challenge is for parents. And now I have a six-month-old. Our, our, my wife and I had our first child. It's taking a step back and, and saying like, okay, yes, fear of being left behind, fear of not accomplishing goals. like That's absolutely going to be there, but you have to let that go for a moment. And you have to try to figure out why your child ticks the way they tick and what that means for their development. Right? Um, I think we know now that people of all levels of success live on an entire spectrum of different types of personalities and learning styles and, and yeah. ambitious styles. And, and just 10 years ago, it was people who got C's became CEOs, not people who got A's, who got A's, but, but that's not even true. It's, it's specific types of risk tolerances and specific types of, of reward systems that are in place when, when kids are younger. So I think, I think for me, the last like 15 years of my life have been both living in the moment, but then also having to relearn what my learning styles mean and what, an ADD constantly running, constantly creative mind means. And that's not that it's a bad thing that I need to be insecure about, but rather it's the source of my creativity and it's something that I yeah. believe with and harness and be proud of. So yeah, that's... It's like learning. It's like a superpower sort of, but it's learning to 
hone that and direct it. Do you have, you obviously do so much at once, being a parent, being a person, being an entrepreneur. Do you have any productivity tips that have helped you or things that you do to manage your your creativity? Yeah, I, I'm the worst with productivity tips because like yeah yes i have things that like i absolutely would suggest that people do but um i don't necessarily do them isn't that like every <laughs> good advice piece yeah know? yeah it really is i mean i mean look like I, I think um the reality of of productivity and 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 it's for any type of mind it's creating moments of calm and now that's either and protected calm so that's either meditating first thing in the morning or um, getting up hyper early like 3 a.m so you have a certain block of time where no one's interrupting you it's turning your phone off it's turning notifications off and a lot of these things i, I do you I do that do. do you get up at yeah. 3 a.m no i do not i try i've tried several times that sounds um, so horrible <laughs> yeah, it's, i'm now up and getting up at 4 35 with our baby but um but not not to work so like but i've tried all of it everybody has their own kind of tactic but i think i think the idea is we've never had so much opportunity for forced stimulation and forced, like it's almost like a combative kind of world around trying to capture your attention in any given moment. So th- there was a time where I remember when we were kids, like you were just sitting on the couch and if you wanted stimulation, you went outside. And if you didn't, you sat on the couch and like that you had to go seek something to take your attention away from your own thoughts. Now you have to put the same amount of effort into finding a quiet places where you can just think and I'm not going to be able to say the quote, but like Einstein was a was a huge proponent of taking breaks from learning and taking breaks from work and taking breaks from conversation just to live in your thoughts because ultimately that's where your ideation happens. That's where you solve problems. That's where you you figure out your relationships, and that's like that's where the work happens. So I think for me, being able to create moments where I have uninterrupted peace is the most important thing. And for me, it used to be when I lived in when I lived in Vegas, it used to be driving around in my car. Because I'd have anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes of time to just be by myself. It's and funny. You're the third, you're the, I don't know, second or third person from these interview series that we've done that's talked about the car being a safe space. And as someone living in New York, it's making me sad. It's, it's <laughs> a thing. No, I mean, yeah, for the for the longest time, like I, I've, I've always, my like lifelong dream was to be a lead singer for a rock band and I can't sing and I never tried it and but like that's the thing in my head that like I always like when I daydream I go back to so like in the car that was my chance to be on stage and that's the chance for me to like live lives that I I, I, yes. I couldn't live because no one's there to interrupt you totally. you're not taking phone calls you're not te- if you're responsible you're not texting while you're driving but yeah when when my wife and I moved to New York I still three years later have not figured out a way to recreate that kind of space. The subway can't do it because like I'm always yeah. on guard, like trying to figure out what's around me. Yeah. And walking through the streets doesn't do it because there's just so much beauty in New York to like take Stimulation. in. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to not. And I understand why like a lot of New Yorkers just keep their head down and stare at the ground as they're walking and don't look at anything. But I can't help it. I'm like, I'm still a tourist out there. Same. I'm like, I feel the same way. I've only been the there lights. two years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how long um, have you guys been there? We've been there three years. I was basically a bachelor for 36 years of my life. And I uh, was in the city for seven years, the last six months of which I I was, uh, six months before I moved, I I was having uh, lunch with an old friend and she was like, so you're single, what, who do you want to meet, who do you want to date, blah, blah, blah. And I I basically went on this like hour long journey of talking about 
all the powerful women in my life that raised me. So like my mother is a renowned anesthesiologist that now works at the FDA. My sister is a top emergency medicine doc. My aunt's a top radiologist. Like I was just around incredibly powerful women. And I'm like, that's, that's what I aspire to is like to be in a relationship with, with somebody that like I can look up to and drives me as much as, as much as I can drive myself. And like a day later, she texts me, she's like, Hey, I've got somebody I want to set you up with. So she sent me a text and with this girl's photo, she's like, oh, I was like, I know this girl. She's a news anchor in town. Her name's Jessica. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to go on a date with her. And she sent Jess my photo and Jess was like, oh yeah, I know that guy. His name's Rayhan. Yeah, no, I don't want to go out with him. <laughs> and uh, so she rejected me. She had interviewed me and I, and like, we, it's a small town. So we all kind of knew who we were and I kind of had a reputation, not a bad one, but like I had a festival, like I was in the entertainment community. I just like, I like going out and being social and, so she said no. And then her words, two weeks later, she's like, you know what? I, I, I think I need a bad decision in my life. So she went on a date with me and we got engaged a year later and got married a year after that and had our baby a year after that. Wow, yeah. So, but that was six months before. So like I met her and we dated for six months and all of a sudden the president of CBS news in New York called and was like, we've seen your, we've seen you on air. We want you out here. We want you to move you to New York. So like, so you guys were in Nevada when you met, we were in Nevada oh. and, uh, she got this call and she's like, okay, my lifelong dreams of Nevada as a child is coming true. So I'm going to pack up and go. So we moved her. And then I came back here and was like, God, if I don't chase this girl, I'm going to regret this forever. So I packed up everything, went out. And the first time her and I talked about marriage was when I proposed. And thank God she said yes. But yeah, we moved right away. Oh. And so we've been in New York for three years now. Wow. Okay. I was going to ask you how you met your wife, but yeah. I'm glad you told me that story because, oh my God, it makes me want to cry. I, I studied broadcast journalism and I never ended up doing it, although this is podcasting is sort of like it. And I know that, you know, that dream of, you know, you have to move to a small market and work your way up. And then, so it's so cool to see that and how you supported her and moved. And that probably felt really vulnerable to you to do that. Yeah. I mean, the, the beauty of supporting her is she's going to do it on her own. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the thing. She is the most like independently motivated, productive, fierce person I've ever met. So like the cool thing about supporting her is like, it's, it's a chase, like, I have to keep up to support her yeah. and it's often not what she needs, but it's what I want to apply, which is awesome. Um, yeah. So I, I'm more dependent on survival with her than I think she is on me, which is like a cool thing. And to see her career climb as fast as it has. And for us to have like our careers are very, like our, our world's very different, but I, I work 362 days a year for three days and she works every day for three hours of, of live airtime. So like we have this cool balance where we get to see the product of her work on a nightly basis. But then once a year she gets to see like the enormous product of the work that we do in a very different environment than yeah. being in the, being at the anchor desk. She sounds very cool. And I would, I feel like she, I would love to have her on this show someday. It's just a, you guys have a good story. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Like, you, again, like the connected dots backward thing, like it, it, everything becomes clearer once it's happened and you can analyze it. But like, I, I read some quote, like some meme quote the other day that said like, only date people or only, only be with people who, who chase you, not mm. people you feel like you're chasing solely. Because like, if you, if you feel like you don't understand the relationship, it means the person's not chasing you. <laughs> like that's It's very clear, but I guess it's easier said than done because I've been in a lot of, 
relationships in my past where like I was the one chasing and not, and not being chased. But, um, I, I think for me, um, the easiest decision I ever made in my life was to pack up and move. And the move was the hardest thing I've ever done because this city had become my home. I built my career here. I, I understood who I was as a person. I was understood who I was capable of. I came to terms with a lot of like the educational stuff and the being behind in school when I was younger. So to leave here, which is very much like it's a, it's a big city tourism wise, but it's a protected bubble of a very small town. I mean, there's 1.9 million people here. I think there are as many people here as in a big city in Iowa. So then to move to New York and she's got this great job, but like to be in the middle of the city and be like, okay, now what do I do next? That was hard. Yeah. But the picking up and moving for her was not difficult. Yeah. Wow. What's your greatest lesson on relationships? Something we always talk about. I feel like you've already given a couple. I think it's understanding your role and having the faith that by picking the right person that you're going to have like your needs met in reverse. So like, I was explaining this to somebody the other day that who's about to have a baby. They, he, was, he was asking me what what his like what it's like for me, and I, and I go, look, the the best thing that I, I can teach you is or advise you on is is this. Her job is the survival of the baby at birth and these this early year. My job is the survival of her, mm-hmm. and it's understanding that like that is the relationship. And the second that you flip it in any way and thinking that like. I'm tired. Why is nobody taking care of me? That's when things start breaking down because you're, you're, you're going against what is supposed to be a very natural event on the relationship side. Even without the child, my job is her survival. Like that is my job. That is like my entire goal in life is to make sure she is the best version of herself, the happiest version of herself, the most supported version of herself. And that is it. My job is not to make sure that she takes care of me in the ways that I need to. I need to know that I picked the right person and that she knows that, that her job is the reverse too. Yeah. And I think that like, that's hard for people to just put yourself out there in a way that like you you're fully deprived or prioritizing your own needs. And it's not, you're, you're not sacrificing your needs. You're, putting yourself into a system where those needs are going to be met by somebody else. And that's going to be rough sometimes because it's a lot easier to wake up in the morning and say like, I want to go exert a bunch of energy. I'm going to go for a hike and I don't need to worry about anybody else because I can make this decision on my own. That's easy, but it's lonely and it's limiting. But when somebody else is like, okay, like we've got to get out and do something and they're coming up with the ideas. That's where like the beauty of a relationship comes into play. So I'm not a relationship expert. I'm just, well, it this sounds like you might be because this is, just this is very helpful. Yeah, it, it's, it's ultimately like, you know, I think it feels so good because we're wired for connection. We're wired for community. And like you said, it can be really nice to not have to think about anyone else and to be in charge of your own decisions. But it's, it is lonely because I think, like I said, we're wired to be in partnership. And what you said about thinking about someone outside of, yourself that happens when you're a parent or in a relationship it reminds me of something it's all about picking the right person and feeling that with them because someone said on this podcast i think it's a marianne williamson quote or something about how when you want someone's happiness more than you want them to call that's true love and that really struck me and i feel like that speaks to what you're talking about yeah no it's um it's interesting yeah I mean, talking to like a bunch of the cues of like what we're discussing here at Emerge, we are meant 
we're wired to be a part of a community. I think that's the important thing. And community can be defined differently for everyone. In my case, it's it's a monogamous relationship with my wife and that's our community. And then the family that we're building, the friends that we're building around it for other people, it's, it's open relationships or it's being single, being a shared or world of resources with friends. It's polyamorous relationships. It's whatever it may be. Like everyone's got to find their own version of it. But I'd say like, start with the community angle, right? Start with the group of people that, that are, your support system for your day to day. And then like, once you figure that out, honing in the person that you want or the people that you want next to you and the yeah. people that you want to commit everything to, like that becomes an easier part of the process. So I think for me, when I was looking at myself as just this like singular entity, just in the universe and meeting people, I never remotely saw success or felt like I was going down the path of success but it wasn't until I was able to establish what my community was. And for my, my community at the time was when I was having that conversation with a friend of mine and saying like, these are the strong women that represent who I aspire to be, who I look up to, who I am, am who I am today because of, and I need somebody who's next to me and with me that is, can be inserted in that world. And that became a lot easier for somebody to be able to help me and introduce me to my wife because I defined my universe. I think that's really important is, is before anybody can come in and assimilate into our own day-to-day life and vice versa, we have to have a very strong understanding of what our community looks like. Even if that community doesn't exist on a day-to-day basis, it's like I wasn't hanging out with my mother and my my sister, and my aunts and cousins. Like they were lived on the other side of the country, but like in my mind, that's what I that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. And literally, like overnight, it just wow. within three years. Now I've like my wife's upstairs and my my kids up upstairs and like we have like my sisters down the hall. We have a family and like it's yeah. it became it became real. Well, let's talk more about community and and going back to emerge a little bit. You know, you merge social justice and music, but the concept of it being a festival, festivals are about community, I think. So can you talk about that? And I, I've heard you talk about before how you look at Woodstock as an expander of one of the first bringing together music and social justice. Yeah. Um, before festivals were represented by Coachella and EDC, there were community events in villages. Like they've been happening throughout history. There were representations of all like the diverse aspects of, of any given culture come to life in the largest way possible. Uh, Holy in India is a festival. The protest movements, the Million Man March, the Women's March, the March for Our Lives, like these are all festivals. And I think historically, the ones that we look at that established our sense of what modern festivals look like were the Woodstock era days. And what people forget is like, people look at that and see clothing choices and attitudes and style choices. A lot of flower crowns. Yeah, what people don't realize is like, that was the physical manifestation of a decade of deep-seated emotions and distaste for a war that we shouldn't have been in and political decisions and presidents that were making decisions not for the broader community, but rather for their own interests. Like it, it was very much a narrow political disruption. And that's what man that's what came out of it. Like Woodstock was the sizzle reel now for an entire generation's kind of anti-establishment movement. And now all of a sudden we live in an area where shut up and sing is a term that's like actually coined as like 
you're a musician. You are not allowed to have an opinion. And of that seems like so matter of fact. And so like something that we should all know. And it's like, what on earth are you talking about? Like Bob Dylan was singing about times changing at a time when times were changing. And like Janis Joplin and Hendrix and like these people were teaching us that the world was flawed and we needed to fix it through music. Public Enemy, NWA, we're talking about racial tensions in urban environments before Rodney King was live on TV getting mercilessly beaten. The Dixie Chicks weren't the first artists to be controversial. I mean, John Lennon said what was something that people didn't want to hear, but was true. The Beatles were more popular than, than religion at the time. Like, And in any given moment, we look back on those times and we seem to simplify them and it's like well that was different and i mean that was different and it's like no it wasn't different those were people standing up for minority rights and championing a vision of the future that could only be seen from an art from an artist's perspective and that's what we need more of today and unfortunately the way social media works and the way digital streaming works and the promotion of artists works it is really dangerous for artists to step up and be an advocate for change. It is really difficult. Dangerous to their... It's not to their health. Like, nothing's going to happen to them. Like, there are crazy people. But to their career? To their career, for sure. Like, remember, like, both the Dixie Chicks and the Beatles, when they said what they said, they were, like, literally steamrollers that were brought out to steamroll over their albums as, like, a visual, like, down with these groups. And Dixie Chicks got hit harder than the Beatles did, for sure, but they survived. They all survived. Today, it's not about... if, if. one of the musicians on our lineup stands up and says something against Trump. It's not, people aren't going to steamroll their music. They're just going to not click the like button. Mm-hmm. And that's a death sentence for a musician. So it's terrifying that like one, our political anger can derail someone's career so aggressively now in a way that didn't really exist before. But then two, because of that, we're choking the music industry and live entertainment industry out of their ability to do what it's done successfully for decades, which is teach us a better way. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's not what emerges about. I mean, kind of maybe, but like that that's my frustration. It's like, where is like, where are the freaking protest songs right now? Like where, where is it? Like we have a 19 year old getting on stage and fighting the NRA. Like you want to talk about putting your life on the line. Yeah. That's literally putting your life online. Yeah. That is like, you know, a bunch of people, 15, 20,000 people want to go to a music festival in this town and some psychopath started shooting them from a window. And this girl is like pausing her life to get out there and advocate on behalf of an entire generation's need to be able to go to school without the fear of getting shot. That is terrifying. That takes guts. We need more of that. We need, and it doesn't have to be like stopping what you're doing and getting on stage and speaking, but like, these artists need to be able to express what they what they want to express. And yeah, it just goes back to like that whole like shut up and sing attitude is just so fucked. It's like yeah. it's like really flawed. Yeah. And it's so interesting how I think I heard you talk about how Taylor Swift hadn't been political and then but did advocate for voting and the voting rates in Nashville Deviled, right? It exploded. It exploded. Yeah. Like it was the highest voter registration, I think, in 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 the entire U.S. For any, it was it was the, the most successful voter registration marketing campaign in history. Was Taylor Swift tweeting? Like that is the power yeah. of 
celebrity of celebrity perspectives. And then, but that's the, the beauty of it is it's like what the killers did. So Brandon flowers performed land of the free last night. And what made that video so powerful, the video that they did with spike Lee was the killers had never stood out and said anything publicly politically or about their political perspective. So like, it's not that we knew where they voted, but they just didn't talk about it. We literally like they were, a brand. They weren't like a collection of individuals. They were a brand. And we did not, not know what that brand stood for until they came out with the strongest political video of the decade. So with Taylor Swift, it's a great example of like, you don't have to be on stage every single night advocating against the president or for change. You can, right? There's, there's definitely room for that. But knowing when you need to step in and knowing the power of your voice. And in her case, I think what she did an incredible job of was she created a sense of urgency for voting and she created like this, she popularized voting for a portion of her audience, but she didn't tell us what to do, mm-hmm. which was a really beautiful. I mean, that's, that's, I think the coolest thing that's happened was like, she wasn't like, get out there and vote. No, oh, by the way, fuck Trump. Yeah. Um, she just got people to vote. And like, we know it's like they, parenting. It's like, if you, tell someone what to do, it might be off-putting, but I think by showing them, letting them make the decision for themselves, it was more impactful, maybe? Yeah, oh, totally. Talk a little bit more about Emerge, and this is the this is the second iteration? This is the second year. This is a very different event than anything I've created in the past. Uh, in the past, it's taking the types of art that exist on a daily basis and putting them together in interesting ways. So at Life is Beautiful, it was bringing street art, culinary worlds. We had celebrity chefs, we had speakers and musicians, and it was already like puzzle piecing it together, but each person got to do what they do well, right? So like when Kanye got on stage, he did on stage what Kanye does, like, and he did it phenomenally. And when Anna Maria, the street artist, got up on her ladder and started painting a mural. She does what she did what she does every day. So that was a bigger project, but easier to execute because you're letting artists do what they do. This has been really, really interesting to put together. And it was intentionally more of a challenge for me because um what we're trying to do is get people to share their rawest, most kind of interesting, unexpected perspectives. And often, if you look at our lineup, we're not dealing with having Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Ariana Huffington on stage. We have people that are relatively new to the thought leadership space. And the intention is you're going to get the most interesting perspectives and you're going to get the future Ariana Huffington's perspective today. But a lot of them aren't really fully formed, or at least not fully formed in this context. So what's interesting is trying to like piece these stories together in a way that follows a story arc that we're crafting while encouraging the musicians, speakers, the artists to kind of expand their storylines. So in some cases, like Jose Antonio Marcus is going to get on stage to talk about immigration reform. He's the Pulitzer Prize winning author that's considered the most famous undocumented citizen. And he wrote an incredible book on the topic, but he hasn't done it in the context of this event with these people and speakers, musicians before and after him. So like what's been interesting here is yes, this is our second year, but it still feels like this is the first attempt to do it. Yeah. because like, it's so new and there isn't a model to follow. There really isn't. Like the TED conference is probably the only other thing that's been out there. I mean, there's some new ones. There's like Summit and the, there's some others, but like TED pioneered the idea of putting people on stage and letting them tell their stories. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to 
tell a collective story with all these individuals is kind of chapters in it. So it's really yeah. interesting. It's really aligned to what I do here with Let It Out. I've been hosting this show for seven years and it's about letting out what we call soft stories. So these are vulnerable, tender, real, undone stories like you're saying here, because I believe those stories bind us and connect us and bring us together and not the package tied up perfectly with a bow story. I think it's the vulnerable ones, the ones that are still in progress that I think we learn through storytelling, which I think is kind of what you were saying. And ultimately the goal of, of these sorts of conversations that I'm having, and I think that you're starting at Emerge, make people feel less alone and heard. And so I always ask, this is usually the last question, but we'll jump around. Has someone told you a story in your life that's been vulnerable, that's been a soft story that made you feel less alone and was useful to you that you can think of? I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know which ones I can tell publicly. Right. It's but, not, uh, but just the gist of something that. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the more, the more beautiful stories I've, I've heard are, are ones where um, my um, friends in the LGBTQ community talk about their journey of coming out because it's, it's one, it's scary to think that like people still have to come out. <laughs> like yeah. I think like this is protective bubble of, of never have had to say like, Hey, mom and dad, I, I really, I like girls. Like, right. can we talk about this? Right. Like, so it, it's something like to hear the journey of like one, understanding who you are as an individual. And then two, trying to figure out at a very young age, how to explain it and, and how to expose yourself to people who are supposed to protect you out of fear that they may not protect you and understand what that journey is like in the positive when they are met with love and affection, but then also what it's like to have to work through the pain of it when they're rejected by the people who who they're, they're supposed to support them the most and what it's like to have to rebuild trust and community. And I think those stories are, are the most beautiful to me because we have a tendency as humans to make ourselves feel more unique than I think we are. And I'm not trying to say that we're not all uniquely valuable because we are, but our pain is not unique. Like when you write these stories down and categorize them, you'll see like throughout history, people repeated the same issues over and over and over again. And the more that we think that we're alone on an Island or alone in a small room and nobody understands us, that's when we get further and further away from actually being able to work through it and find any sort of sense of comfort or protection. So the amount of courage that goes into defining who you are and being able to put that out there in a way that like allows yourself to knowingly be potentially judged or, or whatever it may be. I think that's like one of the most courageous things. And and for me, it's, it's given me a sense of obligation that every opportunity that I get to put myself out there, I've got, to, I've got to do so because mm -hmm. my issues are relatively easy compared to compared to what a lot of people are yeah. going through. And, and I think when you look on our lineup, like you've got, Artists like Big Frida and 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 Laura Jane Grace and Jonathan Paula Williams, who who are really like driving really meaningful change and dealing with things very personally, who are both dealing with them on a personal level in their community, but then also like advocating on behalf of people everywhere is very different. Like I I needed glasses when I was in school and I struggled. And that's like the hardest thing that I I had to deal with. And that seems like everything to me. But like. I don't know if you know Jonathan and Paula Williams' story, but like 
their father and son, it was Paul Williams and Paul and Jonathan Williams, and they were pastors. They still are. And Jonathan's father transitioned, and they basically had to rebuild the way they teach their religion. Their their Christian pastors, like how, how do they how do they teach their religion? in light of this now. And it's just a beautiful story of a father and son and our mother and son coming together and um, kind of reshape the way that they have a relationship with God. And then also how do they teach people yeah. knowing that their perspective on the world is fundamentally changed. And wow. it's like such a beautiful thing because like their sense of obligation to have to carry their community with them along the journey is just really fantastic. Yeah. And I'm rambling a little bit, but like, no, it's, it's a lot what of cool you stories. said about pain is really interesting of like, you know, I think that too, it's like, okay, I'm this privileged white person who has on papers, everything going for me. It's hard for me to, you know, hearing a story like that, or I haven't had to come out these things that systemic racism, all of these things, but like, I've, I've still felt pain and we can still be empathetic and understanding that as people, we're really not all different. I think, you know, when I'm so in my head and feeling so terrible you know, it's like that An San Suchi quote, when you're feeling helpless, help someone getting out of your head and doing something good. Or even if you can't do that, stomach that at the in the moment, getting outside and being in New York City around people, you remember that, okay, the thing I'm spiraling about in my head isn't as big and feeling less alone, I think helps a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard, right? Like it is hard to not feel alone when it comes to this stuff and it's hard to not like i don't know how many times i've said and i know a lot we all say it like you don't understand me or you don't understand what i'm going through and that's the dangerous part and i think like part of it is just trying to be able to understand those triggers and, and no one's pain is worse than another's like it's all relative and we all are dealing with what we're dealing with and dealing with deep-seated insecurities and depression is in a lot of ways even like no different than than my dealing with like racist behaviors when, when, when I was a, a kid, one of them seems inflicted on you, but like, it's still like the pain is the pain. So I, I think like, I think there's two things we can do is one, we can understand that we're all going through stuff together and it's all difficult and it's all important, but like, there's a lot of shared experience out there. And then the other is like, no one's, no one person's pain is worse than another's, but rather like we should focus on to your point, understanding other people's situations first yeah. And that's learning. It's no different than like, if you want to learn how to, I don't know, sculpt, you're going to go take a sculpting class. You're going to read a book. If you want to understand why you're depressed, go talk to somebody who's gone through yeah. it or who's managing it and understand their situation. It's going to be a little bit different from yours, but like, you're going to understand the processes and you're going to learn. You're going to, that's the part of like shared growth. I think it goes back to stories. You know, no. I think we learn from stories and and pain grows us. That's what I was talking to with one of the artists here. Yokler has a song called Good Pain, which is about how going through pain ultimately grows us and connects us. And anyway, it's about shifting a perspective, which I think I want to hear about a beautiful perspective. And that's your overarching company and website, which you know combines journalism and storytelling and obviously live events. How did that name come to be? So Life is Beautiful was that, that that name came out of um a very very close friend of mine's journey to to come out of the closet. It was a 30 year process, but um I remember at the heat of her her depression 
associated with it. And at the time, we didn't know what what the depression was being triggered by. I remember having a conversation with another mutual friend and saying, like, I don't understand why she can't see the world that I do, that the sun's shining, the birds are chirping, the grass is green, and life is beautiful. And and years later, we were able to help her, and she was able to kind of work through it and is in a really great spot right now. But I, I ended up pulling a decade later that that quote and named the festival after her. A Beautiful Perspective for me, it was like the next iteration of it. It's not that we have a beautiful perspective, but rather like the notion of having a perspective is a beautiful thing and it's something that should be celebrated. And I think that the core of what we're trying to do with this company is, is become a forum for people to share their perspectives and treat them all as if they were the most famous celebrity in the world and not prioritize them one or the other. So what you often see is... is um, a kind of relentless focus on emerging voices and emerging perspectives. And the idea is we wanted to build a brand that people can engage in. And the two ways it seemed like people were engaging with this type of content the most. So one was digitally and the other was experientially. The media companies that we follow, we collect all of our news from, we don't get to engage with in a live scenario. We don't get to like touch and feel and, and be a part of. And we are an experiential generation right now. We just spent the last 15 years shaping our, our sense of culture and self in music festivals, in modern music festivals. And we did it in fields of 90,000 people. And then all of a sudden, we're trying to learn about the breakdown in our political system, what that means for the future of our democracy via scrolling through a like flawed social media platforms and we don't get to talk about yeah. them together. So the idea was like, can we create a forum that both educated people digitally on the kind of foundations of the issues through the perspectives of all these minority represented individuals, but then also bring everyone together mm-hmm. to be able to actually discuss them in live formats and show that like there's a community of people who want to learn. Yeah. So. You mentioned social experiments. Can you talk about your relationship to your phone and social media. We're in the little space lounge right now. I was just looking at my phone. So that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> perfect, perfect timing. Um, I'm in various, I'm in, I'm in probably the lowest stage of full-blown addiction to my phone that I think I've ever been. So I've always been socially awkward when I am by myself or when I feel like I'm by myself. So like yeah, if I walk into a room I'm the most awkward when I walk into like a cocktail party and I don't know anyone. Oh my God. That gives me so much anxiety. And I just like, I'm just standing there and I'm just like, so nothing worse. Yeah. So like, that's, I've been like that my entire life and you develop addictions because of a dependency on a certain behavior to soothe another like itch and picking up my phone and looking at it, just checking it became my solution. And then that turned into, well, I'm just going to scroll through stuff and make it look like I'm doing some work or I'm going to do some emails and now I'm going to click through the news. And it's like, well, no, now I'm going to look like I'm really busy during these times. And next thing you know, I'm like sitting in the corner, just sitting there on my phone and it's gotten worse because like, I'm not forced to break out of my comfort zone and actually talk to anybody. I've actually become more and more isolated. So um, three months ago, I think I deleted every app off my phone. I deleted all social media off. I still have the accounts because for some reason, I feel like I have to for work, but none of them are on my phone. And I deleted all my news apps. And the only things that are on there are like email, Slack, and maybe something else. I don't know. The reason why I did that was because like I wanted to kill all the notifications and I wanted to lose all the games are gone, everything. I just wanted to lose any kind of opportunity that I had to just like kill time. Because it's like a hit of dopamine to look down at that every time yeah, you do and it the, and then it gets more. Yeah. Facebook employs like, I mean, this was five years ago, but they had like 26 Harvard PhDs 
who are specialists in addiction working for them to make the platform more addictive and our phones are the same way i I just like it's hard it's weird because like if if i was like if you touch that candle you will never not be able to touch that candle again for the rest of your life you're gonna have to touch that candle you'd be like i'm getting as far fuck away from that candle as i possibly can but for some reason these things that like don't really do much for us. We're like, we just get like hooked on them. So I had to delete everything off. And I have, I have a friend of mine that taught me a trick that went even further. They created a shortcut to grayscale their phone. Yeah, so on the weekends, that. she like triple clicks and it grayscales because like, then she found that she's off her phone 50% less, but I literally deleted everything off my phone. So now if I need any connection to like digital news or social media, I have to get on my computer and do it outside of work and it was life-changing yeah i did that with email because i would find myself waiting in line habitually checking an email reading it marking it as unread and then saying i'm going to handle that when i get to my computer having to reread it doubling the time that was kind of the first realization how addictive it was and some speaking of what you said at the beginning about when you were a kid and you would sit on your couch because stimulation was only going outside that need to be bored that is gone and i think that's what you said with the einstein quote it's like it's really needed and we don't know how these things will affect us i heard bo burnham say that you know we'll look at therapists who are on twitter as we look at doctors who smoke cigarettes like in 20 years what are you doing you're right like people are gonna look back on this era and be like what on earth are these people thinking and that's the hope right the other way to look at it is like this is the new norm and like the universe is going to get shaped around our use of of these tools, but um, yikes! Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird time. I heard you've seen another podcast advice for artists and entrepreneurs of having a clear identification of success. Can you talk about that? I think you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about how you met your wife. Yeah, visualizing success is a real thing. I've had moments in my life where I've visualized certain things negatively, positively, whatever they are, and they come true. And the simple way to say it is like, oh, I've got a sixth sense and I can see into the future and I can make things happen. Like that's a lie because it's not real. But manifesting your reality, I think, is very much a real thing. And manifesting your future and your dreams, etc. When you have a singular goal and you can see yourself there and feel yourself there and understand the world that you live in there and what your behaviors are like and how it's going to look, you subconsciously start making decisions in your life based on that world, Mm. which is why it's so important to kind of work through negative thoughts and periods of depression because that can be a rabbit hole too, that the more and more you focused on the pain and the kind of shittiness of your current situation, the more you're going to make decisions to support that. That's real. I've done that before. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm having a watershed moment right now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real thing. Like if you see yourself as an Olympian and you can see yourself on the platform, getting the medal and you can see what it feels like and getting photos taken and you can feel like the clothes you're wearing and who you're with and what your daily routine is. I can't say you're going to become an Olympian, but you're sure as hell going to hit your fitness goals sooner if that's the thing that you're thinking about. And I have no problem telling people like, shoot, shoot for the stars, you'll land on the moon. And maybe you'll, maybe you'll hit the stars like a lot of people do. And that's the goal. But um, I'm a huge proponent of visualizing dreams that are way out of the reach of reality because God, if you get the chance to hit them, it feels really, really good. 
And even if you don't, it's a great way to orient your life. Yeah. Have you read Dr. Joe Dispenza's books? I've not. He talks kind of about this concept. I think you would I think you yeah. would like it. So do you have a practice of that of sitting and where do you get the clarity of It was my car. I'm telling you, it was my car. It was what I used to drive around. Yeah. Um we got to find a spot in New York that we can do that. I, I really need to when I get back. Car- we should go karaoke, maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. Just something. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I need to find a way to do it. But, like, I, I think every, everyone has the ability to daydream. Even hyper-analytical people, they, they have the ability to daydream. And I think taking the opportunity to do so is an important thing. It's it's not living a different life, but it's it's trying to explore, like, what would feel really, really good. Yeah. And then taking the time to think, not just like, God, it would really feel good if I had more money. Because that's an easy one. But it's like, how would I get it? Yeah. Because like, would it feel good if you had money because you were duping people who were lost into some fake religion and you were getting them to pay a percentage right. of their salaries over to you. Like that would feel terrible. Like, of course yeah. you wouldn't want to do that. So what would you want to do? And just keep going down the road and ask yourself over and over again, well, okay, what would make me feel good to get there? Like, what would that look like? What would that look like? And it's like making like a little like shoebox diorama of yourself. Yeah. And then it's falling in love with that. It's really falling in love with it. And I, I do think that's the way to do it. And I've struggled with that in recent years. Because it's true that like when depression hits, your creativity is typically the first thing that goes out the window. And not and not for like artists are different because like we we have Gerard Way, Rob Cavallo and I were having this conversation on stage yesterday about how like the artist's perspective has always been that like pain fuels creative Mm -hmm. energy and Gerard actually doesn't believe that anymore. And he's got a very powerful perspective on it. But like we have a tendency to to believe that, but um, I, I do think that getting yourself out of the negative and understanding that, like, okay, I feel depressed and I have issues and I have things that I have to work through, but here's what success could look like, and just maintaining a singular vision on that can help. I yeah, do. someone on the podcast recently said, "Go where it's warm," and I really liked that. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, both literally and figuratively. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, these are the the quick fire questions yeah. will get you out of here to run a festival <laughs> but some of them i'll warm you up with the easy ones favorite song you're listening to right now this is the flaw like people think that because I'm a, I'm a festival producer that like i'm the hub of all this like interesting new music and i'm not i'm still listening to the same killers album and the same like counting crows live album i would love to 2001 what's your perspective on that because i listen to a lot of music i loved in high school and as a kid and i pop into new stuff every once in a while, but I've heard that there's like science that music you liked at that age, you'll love forever. Is have- I've never heard that, but like I, I've had obsessive qualities for a long time, like not full OCD, but like if there's a song that I like, and I was Same. like this when I was a kid, I will listen to that song every second on repeat Same. all day for a month. Yeah. If there's a food that I like, I just eat it like crazy. And then I get sick of it. I never want to hear it again. I often find myself rationing. Like, I know that's going to happen and I don't want it to. So I'm like, only two times today. No, I I do imagine. I mean, look, like you're never in your life. Are you both more artistically driven and like your mind is set up to be creative and, and, and kind of super dialed into the emotional side of art than when you're a teenager? Because like your emotions are raging, your, your perspectives are changing. Hormones. Like, yeah. And then music, music 
gives you the lyrics, the artists give you a sense of identity at a time when you're searching for identity. So of course those are going to be rooted pieces of the puzzle. So for me, it was like the Beatles, Hendrix, Joplin, the Beastie Boys, Rage Against the Machine, then the Killers later, for some reason, the Counting Crows. But like there's a whole mix of stuff in there. I think now I the stuff I'm listening to, God, like I'm really excited about Laura Jane Grace today. Against me, I, I'm like a punk guy through and through. I, I listen to Rancid and No Effects and Bad Religion and all of them. Um, but I'm really, really excited for her. And I listen to listen to a lot of Against Me. I've been listening to mostly old punk stuff. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of old punk stuff. A buddy of mine works for a record label, and I was talking to him on the phone the other day, and I was scrolling through their team page on their website. And their head of talent development. I'm like, I know that guy. I don't know. I'm like, holy crap, that's lead singer Goldfinger, which is like this old punk band. And I'm like, you work with this guy? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to Goldfinger every day for the next yeah. month. So that's what I've been doing. Huh. Yeah, it's funny. You get triggered by the elevator up to my room is the Sheryl Crow like outfit at this hard rock hotel we're at. And so I started listening to Sheryl Crow. And it made yeah, me really it's just happy. a thing. Yeah. yeah. So what's your greatest lesson on creativity? It's a muscle like anything else. If you, were a marathon runner and you don't run for a year, could you still run a marathon? Sure. Is it going to be really freaking difficult? Are you going to be less effective at it? Of course. Creativity is the same way. Like people take creativity for granted and we end up in creative ruts, not because we've lost ideas, but because we haven't stroked those, we haven't worked those muscles. We haven't like, we haven't continued to fuel that part of the engine, I guess. So, I think what's important is identifying the things that you feel the most inspired doing. And for me, certain types of movies do that. Reading certain publications do that. And it's not easy. Like for some reason, Harvard business review inspires me from a business perspective. Like I get more energized entrepreneurially reading that than doing anything else that I do, but it is really hard to read a business publication. That's that dense every quarter and finding time to do it. So I'll go six months and I'm like, why do I not feel really excited about like working right now? It's like, of course, cause I'm not doing the thing that makes me excited or like being able to drive around in a car and just blast music and think about like being on stage singing and that, fuels my creativity mm -hmm. but when i don't get a chance to do that then i dry out so I, I think i think it's important to know that like if your creativity is something that you lead with for your success and is an identifier for you you have to treat that the same way you would any other muscle mm -hmm. in the body that you're dependent on like think about yourself as a quarterback who's constantly yeah. trying to rehab and strengthen their like their arm strength or yeah. a runner with like leg strength and endurance or whatever it may be james ultracher has this exercise where he says to write down 10 ideas every morning just you don't have to do them you don't have to act on them just to use that muscle and i think that's really interesting yeah. also i think you need to maybe rent a car or perhaps you and i should go midday karaoke mm -hmm. <laughs> and to spark some creativity i love it okay greatest lesson on god spirituality what happens when we die what do you think about that <sighs> it's hard it's hard. This one's hard because I have a kid and I want to make sure what I say is going to sound good when it's read or listened to later by him. Um, but here's the thing. So I, I grew up in a Muslim household and that's a religion that I know. That's the, those are the practices that I understand. That's, that's the history that I understand. And it's a great anchor when you don't understand the world because we're all there's there's a lot to the world that we just don't understand. It's a great anchor to feel a sense of peace and to feel a sense of purpose. 
And then at some point I learned in school that dinosaurs existed. And unfortunately, like I have a hard time separating out the realities of like, I understand like the stories in these books were meant to be guides. You can't take them literally. Like Noah literally didn't put two of every animal on the ark, but it's like you had the chance if it existed, you had the chance to tell us what it was. Why didn't you tell us what it was? So I think my point is like there was a creation to all of this. And I like to think that whether it's God or some version of that or spiritual energy or whatever it may be, but like why live life as if there isn't any purpose and that like there isn't some sort of like the universal pull that's kind of guiding us a certain way. I struggle with the idea that there's a pit of eternal hell, fire, and damnation that the majority of humans will go live the rest of their eternity in because they don't follow a certain perspective. Like I have a really hard time with that. And as a result, I have a hard time with all of them, but I do find beauty in this. If you look at, this is just my own opinion. If you look at all religions, minus Buddhism, like that's a little bit different, but if you look at all other religions, it seems as if a comedic writing troupe got together, like the group that did um, Monty Python, right? It's like they wrote, a series of movies and shows and characters together. There were like five writers and then they all got into a fight, an ego driven fight and they stopped working with each other and they all were like, I'm going to do this alone. And all the stories are similar and just have little tweaks. Cause this they're is like, brilliant. I'm going to do this better than you. And it's like, Noah was a character in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam. Yeah. Like he works. He's a good character. <laughs> it's like all these people existed. Yeah. It's like, my wife's father is a Baptist preacher and I had this conversation with him because like he wanted to know when I was asking him permission to marry my wife, whether I believe that Jesus was, he, he didn't, he wanted to know if I saw Jesus the same way he did. And I'm like, look, I don't know how to answer that in a way that's going to let you say yes to me marrying your daughter, <laughs> but I'm going to say this and like, Jesus had a major role as a prophet in Islam. Now that's different if you believe that like he is the Lord and Savior. Like it is a different thing. And I understand that. But like I feel like there's entirely too much similarity to not think this all came from a single group of people that were trying to do good and try to create some sort of a purpose. I really have a hard time with anybody that like takes their foot off the gas in their life and is like, I don't know what to do. So I'm just gonna wait and let it happen to me because. God's got a plan. That's dangerous. Do I think that we have a place in this universe? And do I think that we have to contribute positively? And do I think that the more positive moments and decisions and more positive input creates a better future for everybody? Yes, I absolutely believe that. But I also believe that like people are flawed and mental illness exists and it's because we're broken. It doesn't mean we're going to spend eternity alone. Totally. Or not alone but with the majority of humanity. It's just weird. So I don't know. I think you why. articulated that really well, actually. Your, <laughs> what's your baby's name? Nico. Nico, 20 years from now. Hello. Maybe less than that. And I think your dad did a great job. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> There's this book called Devotion I think you might really like, yeah. especially knowing about your father-in-law and your background. And it's by this author, Danny Shapiro. And she has a son. And basically, she grew up in a um, Hasidic Jewish faith and then totally left that and it's her quest to kind of figure out what she wants to tell her son so she talks to like a rabbi a buddhist and a meditation something like that it's interesting (laughs) anyway so i love it it's like it's funny like when you when you see leaders of of various religions come together like i've seen rabbis and imams and priests and preachers all come together just like hang out not like regularly they'll drink together. Like they like, they like, they talk about sports. Like they don't 
argue about which religion's correct. They have a mutual respect for like they're all they're collective yeah. kind of. Because it's like what we've been saying this entire conversation. We're not that different as people. You know, if we really sit yeah. down with each other, we've all felt pain. We've all felt moments of happiness and the spectrum in between. Well, I, I think it's it's not so. Like Adam Grant said this in the book originals that like people on the same side of a of an an idea have a tendency to attack each other more viciously than people on opposite sides. So like the example he gave is vegans and vegetarians will fight each other more than than both versus meat eaters, and it's the same kind of idea in religion. It's I think if you are a proponent for the role the religious play religion plays into making the world a better place you don't really care what perspective the person has you have a shared interest in in spreading love but if you ignore that and you think the like the goal is for me to be right cuz i have to be right first before i change everyone else's mind then you're just infighting like then people who actually need your help aren't getting it because like you're too busy trying to prove you're more valuable or that, that you're trying to satisfy your own ego i guess yeah. All right, last question. Just recommend music, book, podcast, food, TV show, anything you want to recommend in those categories. So I, I my wife and I are in a competition to see who can read the most books this year, and I'm winning. Congratulations. Um, yeah, and mostly it's because I work from home, and I spend a lot of time on flights. She's actually a better reader than I am. But um, my favorite books this year have been... Um, how Democracies Die was an incredible book um, written by two Harvard PhDs who documented the history of democracies that have fallen over over history and, and try to create a model to understand like what are the checkboxes that we need to be aware of. That one was beautiful. Um, both Educated and Made um, were both really incredible books. Educated was Tara Grover's um, story of coming out of a Mormon isolated family, no education, never went to grade school, middle school, high school, none of it, no high school diploma, and is now a PhD and was talking about how she kind of moved forward in her life and created a life in light of her background. And the book I'm reading now, The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a really dense book, but it's it's a it's a Pulitzer Surprise winning bestseller, but it was a, a biography of cancer, which is something that really interested me because it's this like elusive disease that that affects everybody in some capacity, and I just wanted to understand more of it. So I'm reading that right now. But yeah, I'll just do books. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. We end together letting out a deep breath. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. <sighs> Thank you so much for making Emerge and having me and doing the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for so having nice me too. To meet you. Absolutely. Great guy, Rayhan, right? I really enjoyed him. I hope you liked that conversation as much as I did. I really think he was a nice guy and it was fun to get to have such a long conversation with him. A lot of cool conversations coming your way. Like I said, I interviewed a lot of cool people. I interviewed Ryan from Depressed Monsters. I interviewed the artist Yolklore, Andrew Bird. I interviewed the producer of the Alanis Morissette musical that's coming out soon, Jagged Little Pill. He also, you'll you'll hear, it's going to be great. Rob Cavallo, who we mentioned, a lot of cool interviews coming up. In the meantime, let me tell you quickly my likes and learns of the week. Likes. These ones are, this is depressing. I'm just going to warn you right now what I'm going to tell you. Well, for you, it might not be as depressing, 
But for me, it's very depressing. I'm going to tell you two podcasts that I love that bring me so much joy and that they both have been, well, one of them is done, completely canceled, and the other one is on a hiatus, but they said that they don't know if they're going to bring it back or not or when. So that's sad. But the first one is, I've probably talked about this on the podcast before. I'm pretty positive I've had actually, but it's this podcast called Pop Rocket. And it was a panel where they would talk about pop culture in a really interesting way. And there were the best panelists, people who were writers and comedians and pop culture scholars, and they were all in LA, and I just really enjoyed Pop Rocket. So it ended, but for you, it might not be as sad because you have the archive to go into and dive into and listen. And I actually still have some episodes I haven't listened to yet, but I learned about so many cool things from that podcast, things I wanted to watch, things I wanted to listen to, songs, people, things I wanted to read. They would do a summer book club, And it was just really fun to be part of something that is kind of like the water cooler talk. You know, I don't work from an office and none of us really watch things all at the same time anymore, except like when Stranger Things first dropped, you know, like the first time it came out, I felt like everyone watched that at the same time. Or there's a few things where people do that, but It's pretty rare now, except like the Oscars or something, where everyone can kind of talk about a cultural touch point at the same time. And I really like to, you know, do things in in the the Frances Ha. I think there's this line in Frances Ha when she's like, it's good to do things when you're supposed to do them or something like that. I'm, I'm not saying the line correctly, but that's the sentiment. It's nice to hear smart people talk about art. I find that when I see a movie, I want to listen to podcasts of smart people talking about it and seeing what they have to say, seeing if they saw things the same way I did or differently, comparing and contrasting. Anyway, it's a great podcast. Listen to it. It's similar to Pop Culture Happy Hour, if you're familiar with that one, but the panel was a bit more diverse and I just, I really loved it. So I was very, very sad that that ended. And also my favorite TV show, busy tonight my favorite tv show of the season of the last six months also ended which was very sad and another podcast i love it was called glowing up with caroline and esther two comedians the funniest people i just couldn't get enough of that podcast it was it was a delight and i think they even are still recording a couple more episodes so definitely go deep into their archive. Maybe they'll come on and do my podcast. If you would like that, tweet at all of us. Let us know because I think I've invited them on, but I haven't gotten a hold of them. So if you want to help to make that happen, we could have an extravaganza while they're on their break here. And that'd be pretty cool. So I don't know. I just am sad that a bunch of my favorite pieces of content lately aren't being made anymore. It's really sad, you know? And I totally get it. I mean, making a podcast is hard. I've thought about stopping this one and I might 
soon. Well, actually, I definitely am soon, for, at least for a little while. We're going to go on a hiatus in a couple of weeks, so I'm just going to prepare you for that. But don't worry. You've got lots of Emerge interviews coming up. We've already covered that and more interviews after that that I'm still recording all the time now. But I hope you guys are having a really great summer, which brings me to my learn of the week. And this is going to be the least controversial, most basic thing to learn ever, but it's actually true for me right now in this moment. I am so incredibly sunburned, you guys. I went to the beach today and man, it is not pretty. I am a goddamn lobster. I've never been the sunburned in my life. So my learn is wear sunscreen. I sound like that song. And if you haven't, heard that song, Wear Sunscreen, I will send it to you in the email from this week. Make sure you're on the email list. I'm not even going to say any more about it, but I've, I've been obsessed with it since I was in college. I used to play it at the end of all my yoga classes. It's so good. It's like a graduation speech and a poem and a song, and it was in the Romeo and Juliet film with Leo and Claire Danes. It's so good. But that's not what my learn is. My learn is to wear sunscreen. I th- honestly, this happens every year. Like the first time I'm in the sun for an extended period, I get extremely burnt and then I'm kind of okay after that, which is not good. I think I need to, you know, wear sunscreen all the time. I wear it on my face all the time, but man, I just, I was at the beach and I didn't realize it's just a bummer. You know, I'm going to be uncomfortable for a couple days, but there are worse things, right? I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. The emoji for this week's episode is the lobster for obvious reasons. Unfortunately, I wish it was something else, but I think you guys are great. I really appreciate you listening. If you like this podcast, it'd be so cool if you could leave a review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes. And if you want to get the show notes delivered right to your inbox and your email, make sure you sign up because that's a really great way where you're not going to have to write down quotes you want to hear or links of things that you want to try. It will all just be sent right to you and as well as a lot of other things. Oh, and the most important thing I want to tell you, a couple things. Mark your calendars, you guys. In New York City on the 17th of July in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, at the Hoxton Hotel. Have you guys been there? It's so pretty. I love it so much. I am doing a event with previous podcast guest, two-time podcast guest, Clara. Clara is a friend of mine. She's a dating coach and a life coach, and we're doing yoga and journaling and talking about dating, and it's going to be a delight, and I think you should come. I'll be there, obviously. Also, mark your calendars for August 14th. I'm launching something brand new and really special. And if you're in New York City, I know that's a little bit far away. But August 14th, it's a Wednesday night. Just put it on your calendar. Just trust me. It's in Manhattan. I'm not even going to tell you what it is yet. But I would like you to come. And maybe if you're not in New York, come to New York for this event. It's going to be free. It's going to be fun. I'll tell you more soon. But for now, just save the date, you know? I love Ned, you guys. CBD is something that's been very useful for me. It helps with my stress and anxiety. And 
If you haven't tried CBD, Ned is the place to try it. You can get 15% off your order by using the code LETITOUT. All of Ned's products are organic and they're made from natural ingredients, small batch, slow crafted. I've talked to the founders on my podcast and they told me that the person that grows the plants actually plays music for them and says positive affirmations to them. It's so sweet. His name is Farmer Kurt. They just seem like this lovely company and lovely people and... I think honestly that makes the product better. So if you want to try out CBD, it's non-psychoactive derived from the hemp plant, but it's something that has been said to help with sleep, treat insomnia. It's anti-inflammatory. It's a natural pain reliever. They have really great products. It's been said to help treat depression and, you know, it's something that is just maybe worth a try. If you haven't tried CBD before, you know, these are areas that it's helped and I love their, they make these chapsticks that are my favorite chapsticks in the world, but they're honestly their CBD oil that I put under my tongue. It's like, you know, it just helps me when I'm out in the world. I feel a little bit more in my body and it helps me sleep. And I would really love it if you guys checked it out. Supporting the sponsors is a way to help support this podcast. And it really means a lot. So their website is www. Why did I say that? It's just helloned.letitout. And to get your free shipping and 15% off and show your support for the show, let it out. Use the code let it out. Thank you so much. The link is in the show notes. I love you guys so much. Like I said, I think you're great. I really appreciate you listening. You can also donate to the show if you want to help us keep doing it. We only have one sponsor this week and the other sponsor is donating. If you want to support the show, we have a great Patreon subscription program where you can give $1 a month. That's $12 a year and it helps support the show. Or you can give more than that or less than that, I guess. Not I guess, you can, but there are all these different perks at different levels and you could give $5 a month and it just helps us to be able to create the show every week. I'm not the only person that works on the show. We have someone who makes the show notes and the email. We have an amazing editor, Mike. Shout out to Mike and Amanda, who you guys know, who's been with me forever and was at Emerge with me and helping me record these episodes with her beautiful daughter, Penelope, who you might hear in some of these episodes. Anyway, it's just a whole team and family beyond me. So supporting this podcast is nice if you can. And there are so many ways to do that. One of them is completely free by telling a friend. That's probably the most useful way to support the show. Another way is to, like I said, just subscribe and leave a review and just keep listening if you enjoy it. I love you so much and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.